It had been a long, hard week. Jesus was exhausted. People could see it on his face. He needed to get away for a while. He needed a spiritual retreat from the pressing crowds, from people calling out his name, pulling on his robe, and in some cases challenging everything that he said and did. So taking Peter, James, and John with him, he went on top of a mountain to pray. And halfway through what must have been a very long pastoral prayer, the disciples began nodding off. I love that. Who says there's no humor in the Bible? Jesus went up on this mountain to pray. Now in the Bible, when people climb a mountain, it means to pay special attention. That something important is about to happen. Jesus, as you recall, delivered his first sermon on a mountain. It was on Mount Horeb that the Lord called Moses, and it was on Mount Sinai that he received the Ten Commandments. And as we heard in our first reading, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. In the Bible, mountaintop experiences are moments when time as we know it stops, when the past and the future flood the present, where people are lifted above their everyday life where they experience something glorious. If you've ever been hiking or skiing up in the mountains, you know the feeling. Standing up there far above it all, you suddenly begin to feel like a new person. You gain a new perspective on your life, a kind of bird's-eye view of the past, present, and future. And in that instant, you sense glory all around you. And so it happened 2,000 years ago, As soon as Jesus began praying, his clothes and face shone like the sun. In that instant, chronological time became eternal time. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear next to him. All three of them are bathed with the light from on high. Moses and Elijah appear from the past into the present, and together they talk to Jesus about what will happen to him in the future. Now, Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. They are there to support Jesus for his journey ahead. The three of them together is what I would describe as a holy huddle. The three of them together bathe in glory is the Bible's way of saying that Judaism and Christianity are seamlessly linked. It is a biblical wake-up call to any and all Christians who are anti-Semitic. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were bathed with a glorious light from on high. Now, the word glory is used twice in this passage, which means we should pay attention. Glory is often translated as radiant beauty, a beauty that is praiseworthy. Now, I've been thinking about this passage all week long about how the Bible's definition of glory, of radiant beauty, is so much different than how our society defines it. In our culture, we are taught that the key to making our faces shine is going out and buying shiny jewelry or shiny cars. And if we want to look dazzling and glorious, we buy dazzling clothes or large, glorious homes. The Bible, on the other hand, believes that beauty is something that cannot be purchased. Rather, it is a reflection of the soul, a sudden glimpse of eternity, 
something we are all endowed with. One of my favorite poets, the late John O'Donohue, wrote a book titled Beauty. It is a masterpiece. The following is one of his observations. It reminds me a lot of the passage for today when Jesus' tired face suddenly begins to shine. Beyond the veils of language and the noise of activity, the most profound events in our life take place in those fleeting moments where something else shines through, something that can never be fixed in language. Frederick Buechner concurs. Something like this happens once in a while. The face of a man walking a child in the park, or a woman picking peas in her garden, or sometimes the unlikeliest person listening to a concert, or standing barefoot in the sand watching the waves roll in, or just having a beer at a Saturday baseball game in July. And then he says this, Every once in a while, something so touching, so incandescent, so alive, transfigures the human face. It is almost beyond bearing. When I read that, I was reminded of my daughter, Sophie. I'll never forget the day that she was born. Because of my vantage point in the delivery room, I was the first person to see her face when she came into this world. A face that to a new father was almost beyond bearing. And when she became a toddler, I caught a glimpse of it again and again. It happened whenever she played peekaboo. Each time she unveiled her face with her little hands, it shone like the sun. Ah, but then along came adolescence. Teenagers, I conclude, are the most veiled creatures on this earth. Sunglasses over their eyes, earphones in the ears, fingers texting constantly. They are truly a generation in hiding. And yet every now and then they suddenly appear. John O'Donohue captured this beautifully as well. Even now in the dark lens of adolescence, where conversation is scarce, and where monologue frequently dims into single-syllable glowering, even now the parent is still given the occasional clear view through the blurred, awkward surface. The beautiful radiance of the child's soul becomes briefly visible. It happened recently, again, when Sophie came home from law school for the holidays. We were walking the dog along the beach when suddenly the morning sun lit up her face. In that moment, the past and the future flooded the present. In that moment, I witnessed the eternal glow of a child, an adolescent, and a young woman in one brief, glorious moment. O'Donohue got it right. Divine beauty is briefly visible. It is always fleeting. It is a lifelong game of peekaboo. Beautiful incandescent moments that we can never prolong. That's why Peter wanted to stay on top of the mountain that day. He wanted to prolong beauty. By suggesting that they build three dwellings, one for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, he wanted to nail down the experience. But Jesus knew better. 
He knew that we cannot nail down life's glorious moments, nor can we ever accurately describe them. Because the minute we do, we immediately deconstruct them, we diminish them. The painting is reduced to pigment on canvas, the music to black notes on a white page, the full-bodied wine to cheesy labels, the beautiful meal to protein, carbohydrates, and amino acids. Which is why after witnessing the transfiguration, Luke writes, Peter, James, and John kept silent. In those days, they told no one what they had seen. It was impossible to explain it. They kept silent. In other words, the whole beautiful experience left them speechless. Now, one final thought about beauty. A few years ago, I discovered there is an ancient and venerable tradition that believes God is beauty, that Christ is the incarnation of God's beauty, and most profoundly, that beauty and truth cannot be separated. Stop and think about that. Beauty and truth are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. In John O'Donohue's words, without beauty, truth becomes a blunt imperative. To put it another way, to put it my way, without beauty, political and religious so-called truth becomes a blunt imperative. Therefore, I conclude the following. I conclude that truthful religion and truthful politics always seek to leave beauty in their wake. That everything they say and do in the name of God and nation should be praiseworthy. The current invasion of Ukraine is just the opposite. It is not beautiful. Rather, it is ugly and uncalled for. In the words of 24-year-old Sofia Bedico, a Yale student living three blocks from here, it's honestly been absolute hell. My entire extended family lives in Ukraine. There is no feeling like trying to carry on with your life here when you don't know if your family is going to be bombed in the next minute. The air sirens are always going off where they live. The government keeps issuing warnings that there will be more and more nighttime attacks. What is happening in Ukraine is ugly and uncalled for. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the book of Proverbs put it like this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haunty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run toward evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers and sisters. The test of truthful religion and truthful politics is that it leaves beauty in its wake. And sometimes that involves sacrifice, sometimes even self-sacrifice, but never to hurt others intentionally, rather to help them, to save them.
Beauty and truth are inseparable. When we see divine beauty in others, truth actually calls us. We are called to enter into their suffering. We are called to do beautiful things on their behalf. That's why Jesus did not stay up on the mountain that day. Rather, after huddling with Moses and Elijah on their counsel, he went back down to the real world, and he began his journey toward the cross. And so it is for all of us. This is the last Sunday before Lent. We've come to this high and holy place. We come here to pray, to huddle together with the saints of the past, to hear the voice of God saying, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. To gain a new perspective on the future of our lives and of our world. We come to this place where for a few brief moments our faces shine. But soon it is time to leave. Time to go back out into the real world. To begin our own Lenten journey to be his disciples, body, mind, and soul, to glorify God in word and deed, and through it all, and through it all to leave beauty in our wakes.